Listener Production. Benjamin Law, thank you so much for submitting to this involuntary interrogation. I'm happy to yield. Trust no one. The level of sedition, anti-authority behaviour and advertiser-unfriendly thought crime has reached record levels, especially amongst Australia's elites. Treason. Luckily, the men and men of The Chaser have been commissioned by Border Force to conduct interrogations and sort out the subversives from the Patriots. Betrayal. In conjunction with ASIO and the Five Eyes Intelligence Sharing Protocols, this is Extreme Vetting with The Chaser. Charles, our target today has written an instructional manual about how to create moral panics. Dom, that sounds incredibly useful. His name is Benjamin Law. He's a writer. He's done the family law book and TV series. He's on screen time on the ABC. He's all over the media constantly. But he's written 25,000 words about safe schools. You know that thing that sounded innocuous but uh, the Australian titles was really, really scary? Oh, well, and it was scary. It was teaching 13-year-olds how to draw vaginas and things. Something like that. Yeah, yeah. I don't really understand what it was. just knew that I didn't like it. Anyway, he's written about this, and uh, while those ideas are terrifying, it's very useful for us as a guide to getting things stopped using just a couple of MPs and our pals at The Australian. Well, I've done a huge amount of research on this. I've read all his tweets, so I'm ready for this. All right, let's bring him in and see if we can't put a stop to his dangerous ideas. Now, Ben, you've written a 25,000-word essay Mm. on safe schools, the same-sex marriage debate, all this sort of stuff. So our choice was to read that or just to read your tweet about hate-fucking MPs. Oh, I think you chose correctly, really. I think that's my finest work today. We took the easier option. Yeah. So can we start with that? Well, let's start with the definition of I, I, I found I sound like I'm in, you know, Lions Youth of the Year here, but what is the meaning of hate fucking mm. and where does it come from? How does it work, we're wondering. Well look, the, the tweet that you're referring to had me suggest that I wished sometimes that I could basically offer myself up for a hate fuck with homophobic politicians to get it out of their system. Oh, so so you would be the subject of the hate fuck. Oh, I would not... I would be submitting myself. Oh. I didn't phrase it that clearly in the original yes. tweet, which is why I am now known as rape advocate Benjamin Law. I now <laughs> yeah. carry that on my business card, which is probably why border forces have problems with so me coming back good. into the country. It's good to clear this up. So it's consensual. Oh, yeah. But while you're doing it, you're hating the experience. Is Absolutely. that what this is? Look, I'm, I'm giving No, a, no, they're hating you, aren't they? Well, both. It can, yeah. it can carry both ways. Mm. And the thing is, what I've been really glad about is, though the national conversation I wish was around safe schools, and mm. to an extent has been because of the essay, what I feel I've also provided is a public service so that a lot of conservative politicians now have a name for what their partners subject themselves to every night. <laughs> and and, and I, I, know you've had, uh, I know you've had tangles with the Andrews family in the in the past. Oh, we've we've had a we've had a wild dance. Let's call it that way. There there is a there is a story of my encounter with Kevin Andrews and his partner Margaret Andrews, his wife, um, back from years ago. That was published on Crikey way back when, and that piece proved so popular when it first came out, it crashed the entire website. And I remain very proud about that. Isn't there a beautiful image of the two of them just sitting on a sofa, chastely holding hands? That's how I believe they have intercourse. So just to get back to the hate funky, when you see a picture of George Christensen in, I get erect, yes, in, I get a, in a singlet with a whip looking enticing, is it, 
are you kind of drawn to him, but at the same time revile him? Is that how the hate fucking process happens? He's not my type necessarily, but I have to say that iconography, that aesthetic is very familiar to me and my community. So the whip, the tattoo, the expo, he is appealing to, let's say, a certain community within the LGBTI community, and he'll definitely have a fan base. I'm not necessarily part of it. And do you think that that was his intention in... In taking that photo? Because it's an olive branch. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's subliminal. I think the photographer probably knew what they were doing, Mm. but I think it's like George George is conveying a message whether he knows it or not. And the headline, I think, was it's time to take George Christensen seriously. Was that what you got (laughs) from that image? Um, I think that's his come online when he involves himself in certain role play involving that costume and prop. I think um, if you haven't seen the image, please go and Google (laughs) George Christensen. He'll be the star of your new sexual nightmares. But, of course, he features in the the quarterly essay, so we'll get to that and his role. Oh. In this whole debate, but but shall we start where your I guess career in the public eye started? Oh God, where did it? Start? Growing up, yeah, yes. that's right, that's true. So I grew up Asian Australian on the Sunshine Coast. So essentially, this scrawny Asian kid growing up in a surfing part of Australia really makes sense. Yeah. Why the Sunshine Coast as opposed to anywhere else? I question that myself, Don, because neither of my Chinese parents can swim. So this is a country and a continent, obviously, surrounded by water, and the majority of Australians live near a body of water. But why my parents chose to live so close to the water when neither of them can swim kind of baffles me. They also chose to live in a part of Australia that's uh, very, very white. And because I grew up pre-internet as well, um, I got all of my images of Australia from the TV. TV, and back then TV was really white. It really astounded me once I left my hometown that Australia is quite multicultural. I felt lied to. Mm. And so with your parents, were they born in China? Or? So my mum my was born in Malaysia, but she's ethnic Chinese, so Chinese Malaysian. And my dad was born in the south of China in what was called, you know, Old Canton, nowadays Guangdong province. And, and do they donate to the ALP? I'm just <laughs> asking on behalf of Sam Destiari. Well, yes, we've, we've, had some, we've had some covert chats with Sam Destiari that I can't talk about right here. So do you think that they look through the list of places they could possibly move to and they saw Sunshine Coast and thought, yep, that sounds pretty good. Yeah, everyone looks the same as us and everyone speaks the same as us. Look, it, it, it's still a bit of a mystery. One of, the, one of the serious explanations is that they knew some people there, but I think once my mum moved to there, it was her first time in Australia at all, and she looked around and she's like... I've made a mistake. I've made a terrible, terrible mistake. And mm. and were you a goody two shoes as a as a child, or were you a bit naughty? Look, I I try to fit in with whatever racial stereotype I can. So mm. I definitely was diligent, Asian, obedient nerd, and that came naturally to me. But I was kind of a bit of a smart ass as well. So in my report cards, academic achievement would be quite good, but also Ben needs to shut up. Now we've seen, of course, your childhood reenacted on the TV series of The Family Law. Uh, you might know that. If not, do go and check it out. But we want to probe past your carefully constructed oh, yeah. uh, creation myth, origin story, and look at you as a child. What was the naughtiest thing you did growing up? Oh, um, that. so, well, in grade three, we had a teacher who was giving us our first sex ed lessons. And if you grew up in my family, you didn't really need sex ed lessons because mum was pretty frank about that stuff. But I just thought it was hilarious that she had this huge, giant pop-up book of three-dimensional genitalia that she'd show us. So you'd literally flip a page and out would spring this erect cardboard penis just jutting out at these these, uh, primary schoolers. Um, I thought it was really, really funny during the, the lunch break to 
pretend to be the teacher and point to the, the metal penis and vagina with, with a metal ruler. It created pockmark holes throughout the book and I got in a lot of trouble. And, and is that book what made you gay? Yeah, basically, yes. I look back at my formative experiences and I'm just like, it was the cardboard that did it. So with all this stuff about safe schools, Ben, the indoctrination was already happening. They were already... Uh, you're already getting penises thrust in your face in primary school. In a Lutheran school, no less. So, so well, really, people yeah. talk about <laughs> exactly. Um, but people talk about safe schools being, you know, indoctrinating kids into radical sex education. I'm like, mm, go to some of the Christian schools around Australia. They're already teaching it in a pretty weird way themselves. So, the worst thing you did was uh, metal ruler into Defa- paper genitalia. Deface genitalia. That was my hate crime towards the genitals of Australia. And what was the punishment for that? Um, I had to go to the library, uh, cap in hand with the, with my book underneath my, with that book. Yeah. With that book and tell them I was the one responsible. And I wept, I wept hot, hot, guilty tears because, you know, shame is so central to Chinese culture. And when you feel it, you feel it pretty on a, on a big scale. But meanwhile, at home, your mum had fallen in love with the word cunt. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, she first, she claims that she first heard the word from us because when you come from a migrant Mm. background and, you know, I was born in Australia, so I'm a native English speaker, it's always a two-way education. Of course, you're learning from your parents, but they're learning the ways of Australia through you. And mum says, yeah, she's like, one of you must have come home one day and called someone a fucking cunt. And and (laughs) did you explain to her... Oh, yeah. I was like, look, it it refers dictionary wise, it's a vulgar term for female genitalia, but it's also a really rude thing to say. And she's like, well, how rude? Because it's hard to kind of gauge my, my, my spoken Cantonese is quite crap. So I know a lot of swear words, but again, you know, the stuff that we say at home, mum was like, you can't say that in Hong Kong. Uh, so we'd say, look, don't use it with, um, don't use it in public. Don't use it with, you know, anyone that you think you're joking around with. And she's like, well, can I use it with my gynecologist? Is it like an anatomically <laughs> correct term? And I'm like, I think I think your gynecologist uh, wouldn't be offended, but they may be surprised. It's a term of trade. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But just, you know, I can't imagine that they'd appreciate it while, while well, a is, duck bill is in motion. <laughs> this is the first fascinating thing. As in so many migrant families, the the teaching goes two ways, doesn't it? Absolutely. So my mum, of course, was teaching us about the world, about manners, about Chinese culture, blah, 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 blah. But because her second language is English, we're often teaching her English words, teaching my dad definitely English words as well, and teaching them the ways of Australia. Like, yes, as your children, we will probably get drunk and or fingered on the beach by the age of 16. Was that an Australian thing or a Sunshine Coast thing? Probably a Sunshine Coast thing. (laughs) But you and your mother have, just to plug another project of yours, um, you give... Uh, tips, don't you? The sort of like personal life sex tips. Yeah, have done we, for a long time. We write a sex and relationship advice column together, which a mother son sex and relationship advice column, which I know just sounds like the most fucking bizarre thing ever. But for us, it just kind of works. We've always been really frank about that stuff. Mum, strangely, was a kind of Chinese mum who when there was a, you know, a sex scene on SBS, she'd say, kids, check this out. It's hilarious. So we we had a very different upbringing um, and therefore we feel quite comfortable answering people's questions. Is, is that what made you gay? Basically, yes. That was the second thing that made me gay. It comes in three stages. <laughs> Because I remember watching those same movies, but furtively and in secret at the time. So yeah. I would have preferred to grow up in your household with uh, with my mother liberally 
dropping C bombs. Well, I mean, that there were some things. I mean, I I think she had I think she had some boundaries. If it was like pleasant lovemaking, that's something that we could all enjoy together as a family. <laughs> but then I would covertly go through TV Week and I'd find anything that had the golden trifecta, which was A, X, and N, because mm. A was adult themes. X was sex scenes, N was nudity, and if it had all three together, you could probably guarantee you were going to get something hardcore. Yeah, that, see, that came in a bit after we were growing up, didn't it? Because oh, yeah. we always just used to have AO. That was the oh, only AO. Of course, AO. Yeah. yeah, no, when I when I was like twelve, they probably it, changed it. To it like was like a, a form guide. For yeah, the week. absolutely. Yeah. It was like people looking at a TAB form or something. Having to just sort of sneakily record things on the VHS when parents had got it. It wasn't an easy time. No, you'd have to get your blank VHS, put it in. I do remember the, no labels. The, the breakthrough, though, that was G-Code. I don't know if you remember G-Code. There was nothing G that was recorded was a- <laughs> with the G-Code. <laughs> but every program would have like a six-digit code and you punched it in and your VCR would automatically automatically record. And for some reason, you didn't even have to set the time. That was the whole selling point that of G-Code. That was the incredible was, thing. It'll still know when it's on. It was essentially with- witchcraft, Charles. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. It's funny, though, isn't it? Because when you... I guess have all these sorts of experiences now. Presumably, kids just see it on the internet and know everything from day one. But it was this furtive exploration of, of figuring out what you're into. And so, on, I remember a, a key moment in my childhood was discovering that my father, bless him, had recorded a four hour pretentious French movie, most of which Emmanuel Bayard spent with her clothes off. Oh, beautiful. And so, that, because he that loved art house cinema. That was, that was creatively, it was both wanky and involved a beautiful and taking clothes off. So exactly. that, I was kind of sorted at that point. What, what was your and to version this day, you can't masturbate unless it's still like a Pasolini film. Oh. That's true. Yeah, I basically have to get the box of pastels out um, or, or nothing happens for me sexually. I view it as a good thing. <laughs> what, I, I forgot your question. What, w- so was that what my was your thought? version of, of, of that kind of thing? When did you start uh-huh. to figure out how things worked for you sexually? Because that's what the essay is ultimately about. Yeah, well, when I look back at all of those late night SBS films, like I was watching a lot of Pedro Moldovar as a as a young teenager just because all about my mother. All about my mother, all that sort of stuff, but there were other Spanish films um that he, you know, ne- didn't necessarily direct, but I was watching like, like a lot of European art house cinema in my teens, not knowing that it was important just because it had boobs and dicks in it. And of course, I just found myself more drawn to the dicks. Uh European cinema is pretty liberal with its full frontal nudity, pretty democratic between men and women as well. Whereas like in Australia, I think we've, we had like a lot of nudity with number 96 or what was the other one? Like, I want to, I want to say cheers, but no chances. Chances cheers is a different Jeremy show. Jeremy Sims's butt. We got a lot of Jeremy Sims's butt. Absolutely. On that show. But, but even I'll, underbelly was mainly just women. Absolutely. Getting the kid off, not the men. And I think it's still really rare to see in Australian and by extension Western television and cinema, um, you know, full frontal male nudity. But Europeans, that's what really opened my eyes and and <laughs> other orifices, so I guess. What a beautiful thing that SBS having given to you, you're now working for SBS. Oh, it's absolutely. Kind of beautiful continuum. It's a reciprocal co- sort of trade-off. Yes, this is my this is my thanks to them. I'll give you a show. Not with any full frontal nudity, at least not yet. Not yet. <laughs> Didn't your parents give you a book to teach you about sex education? They throw you a book and, and it was actually sort of excoriating of homosexuality and, oh. and said... You know, don't choose that. It's true. I don't think my parents knew. Like, 
in our household, books were never a waste of money. We had a lot of books growing up, but my parents weren't big readers themselves. So they would get the books that they were told or had heard were really, really good for young people. And one of the books was a book by Dr. John Wright, who's still, who's still about. Hang on, um, hang on. When we jump in on this, the book is by a Dr. John F. Knight. Oh, Dr. John F. Knight. Your dad? Is it your dad? My father's name is Dr. John F. Knight, and he is a doctor based in Sydney. Wait a minute. Is this your dad? No. (laughs) Throughout my entire childhood, we received calls based on the white pages of people wanting to speak to Dr. J.F. Knight. What, in Sydney. What, what did they want to know from him? They wanted to know all manner of, all that, we kind of had to say it was the wrong number, but we, we had a script. Every day we get a call for this doctor and I didn't wow. know why until I read your quarterly essay. Oh, so you hadn't encountered these no. books that Dr. John F. Knight had written called Everything a Teenage <laughs> Girl so and Everything a Teenage Boy Should Know. Maybe maybe I was one of those phone calls. I wonder <laughs> if I go back <laughs> into well my history be. and I'm just like, Dr. Knight. Is homosexuality as filthy as you say it is in your book? Because, yeah, this is the thing. My, my father has no issues about any of this yeah, sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, he would have yeah. written a very different book. But um, but in your case, oh, it was essentially it was a, now. It was a, a, a little hate-mongering book, wasn't it? I mean, it was hate-mongering in a very pleasant way, which a lot of hard-right conservatives do very, very, jolly very, very about well. It. He was very, very jolly. He was just like, um, after he spends paragraphs talking about how disgusting and unnatural gay sex and onanism is, he says, give homosexuality the big miss, exclamation mark. <laughs> I've now screen printed that on a T-shirt as well, which I wear to parties. But um, it was one of those kind of books where insidious homophobia was present in a lot of texts aimed at children and teenagers. And that was, that was the stuff that I was fed. So and this that's was a- the reason why I'm gay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so this was an instructional manual that your parents had given you. And this jolly, while answering all sorts of other questions about where people came from, the paragraph on homosexuality was completely... Nasty. Absolutely. And and because I was growing up pre-internet, I mean, dial-up internet only became a thing when I was like 15 Terrible years old. Terrible for porn, dial-up. Exactly. You're the slowly loading Slow JPEG. Load times. Whereas like the youth of today, they just get piping hot. And band. The first thing they see is probably like some sort of anal enema or something. You know, what a beautiful <laughs> coming of age. Uh, but for me, I, was lo- I remembered looking up you know, the H section of Encyclopedia Britannica for information about homosexuality or in a book like Everything a Teenage Boy Should Know, which is, one, offensive, and two, medically incorrect. Mm. Now, Ben, what kind of age was it when you were asking yourself these sorts of questions and turning to the man who has the same name as my dad but he's not my dad (laughs) for answers? Um, You know, puberty. But even before then, I always had this, this hunch, this indisputable hunch that... Uh, the way I feel about girls is not the same way that other boys feel about girls and the way that I feel about boys is definitely not the same way that other boys feel about boys, but I, I didn't have the vocabulary to talk about it. Mm. But then when those feelings and other things come out of you and your body around adolescence, that's when you really know something is up. Mm. Yeah, like I didn't even know about gayness until I was about 15 or whatever. Like, it just didn't even, it wasn't part of the thing. Whereas, mm. like, I've got kids six and nine, and we talk about being gay all the time. Yeah. Like, it's just actually, it's now, it, it really has changed just across the generation. What a huge generation. But I was shift. hoping, you, you know, you do a sex column. I was hoping you could clear something up <laughs> from my nine-year-old. Okay. Who went, look, I get I don't how, know where this is going to go, I but get, I'm up for it. <laughs> I, I get how man-woman sex uh, goes uh-huh. because you just 
put the penis in the vagina yes. and jiggled it around. At yes. nine? That's pretty yeah, impressive yeah. work for nine. No, no, that's what he said. And then he said, and I get how man-man mm. sex would happen because you put it in the poo hole mm. and you jiggle it around. That's great. That's but, how I explain it to people as well. But how, Dad? Does the does lesbian? Does the le- does, where does do you put le- it in? And ha- what do you put in? I've got an answer from um, from when I went through primary school. I remembered one of my classmates, I think it might have been Sasha, who asked one of the teachers, how does lady on lady work? And our teacher apparently said to her, gently. <laughs> oh, that's, 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 that's lovely. lovely. I mean, this process of discovering how things work and where we fit into it is what this book's all about. Mm. But your essay focuses on people who, who feel particularly lonely and isolated. And in some cases, to be serious for a moment, this does end very tragically. Mm. Um, well, the way that I actually start the essay is by reminding people why a program or an initiative like Safe Schools existed in the first place, which is that for decades, um, Australian governments, both federal and state, have recognised that LGBTIQ young people or gender questioning people uh, do have higher rates of um, suicidality, they have higher rates of truancy and non-completion of school as well. And that's actually why it was uncontroversial for the conservative Victorian government to launch it in Victoria. It was uncontroversial for Tony Abbott's government to launch safe schools in Australia. I think a lot of people actually forget it was the conservatives who actually rolled it out because these stats and figures were accepted by everyone. So I start the essay with a case of a young person who actually was suicidal and and followed through with it and was only 13 years old. And I feel like the whole reason why safe schools existed in the first place has been lost on everyone. Because there was a need to actually make schools safer. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's kind of come to this part of the timeline where safe schools is almost like Orwellian speak for something else. But safe mm. schools was about making unsafe environments for people safer. And I know that a lot of people think, well, well, are that many kids and teenagers really that aware of their sexuality or gender anyway? Isn't this a really kind of boutique strange issue? To which I'd say, and maybe this is pointing out the obvious, straight kids are affected by homophobia too. This is what I was going to say. Like, that was what I got teased about all through high school was there were these dickheads in science who would just tease me mercilessly for being a fag the Absolutely. whole time. If you deviate any any way from the norm, you know, homophobia is a way where, you know, kids and teenagers, we police each other. We policed each other growing up. I know I did it as well, where it's just like, don't do that. That's such that's so gay. Or, you know, you're acting like a fag. And, and girls do it to each other to maintain femininity as well. You know, girls don't act like that. Don't be a dyke. All that sort of stuff. It's not something that's just for LGBTIQ kids because this sort of language is, is really, really common to the point where actually, because, you know, Australia is not the only place that's had initiatives like safe schools. When you look at Canadian schools who've done something similar, you actually see suicide rates drop for straight male teenagers. But this comes back to, I guess, the essay and the whole context, because the messages with this kind of stuff that you get from teachers, you get in the classroom tend to form norms in a way, don't they? Mm. And I think another thing is if you're not talked about at all, I mean, I look back at my school experience and luckily for me, I didn't get any, you know, homophobic abuse myself because I was Asian, so I couldn't be both both gay and Asian at the same <laughs> That's time. That's a wonderful experience of intersectionality, <laughs> isn't it? Exactly. So it's like it was it was probably better to be an Asian in mid-1990s Pauline Hanson, Queensland because I just copped the racial abuse instead. <laughs> um, but uh, And that wasn't, you know, and I don't think school itself maintained some sort of outward 
outwardly homophobic kind of policy or anything like that, but you do leave that school environment completely equipped for your adult reality because there's been no mention of it. And the, the mentions of it have been kind of baked in scripture as well. So what's been really interesting in researching this essay about Safe Schools Australia is that a lot of people say, look, it's, it's conservatives versus progressives. It's Christians versus non-Christians. And what I've discovered is that's not necessarily true. There are one of the biggest Catholic church networks in Australia has adopted their own version of safe schools and baked it around scripture and saying these are the Bible verses that means that, that show us why we need to protect the vulnerable. Sorry, Benjamin, can I just have a, a moment? Please. Just, just let's take a question. Charles, can I reveal to you now that the point of this exercise mm. for us, which yeah. is really, really useful... See, the quarterly essay is called Moral Panic 101. Mm. And so for us, it's a great chance to learn how to create a moral panic. I know, exactly. It's, it's an instructional guideline. And uh, we'll talk to Ben and find out all these sorts of very sensible things he has to say. But wait till we start exploring the way that the Australian and all of our other allies mm. managed to squash it. I oh, know, they were good, weren't they? It's just an absolute masterclass. Yeah. So we'll, we'll go back in just... Just keep that in the back of your mind um, because Minister Dutton is very keen for us to do the same sort of stuff. There's all this stuff about Manus in the media at the moment. We've got some work to do. And the good thing is that uh, now that we know that Ben was actually born in Queensland, um, you know, Dutto would get along with him. Well, they used to write for News Corp, it says in the essay, which is another question I want to follow up. Anyway, Charles, do you listen to a lot of podcasts? Nah, I hate them. Oh, you know what the best thing is about podcasts? What? It's when they interrupt a perfectly good conversation for this. Yes. Sorry, Benjamin. So it's all this stuff about the schools, mm. um, I, I guess, shows why uh, this stuff's important. And one of the major factors in, in the whole, I, I guess, safe schools dust-up was Gaby Baby, this, this mm. movie that, that came out. Now, when I used to work for the ABC and have very different politics, I, used to, I interviewed the, the director, Maya Newell, mm. and uh, it seemed very innocuous and sweet, the movie at the time. Little did I know how outrageous it was to be a... To, to become. How, how much of a brainwashing exercise it was for the youth of Australia. Gaby Baby, uh, especially if you live in Sydney, you might remember the Daily Telegraph's coverage of it, which was essentially saying that this documentary promoting gayness is going to reach our schools and become a mandatory kind of thing on the curriculum. It was this huge kind of panic that was whipped up over what was a pretty sweet documentary about gay parenting that was rated PG as well. And the, the, the kind of upshot of that is hilariously uh, former Premier Mike Baird tying himself up in knots saying, do we believe in tolerance? Yes. Should it be taught in schools? I don't think so. <laughs> so it's kind of like during the school lunch hour, but not in classroom time. That's for scripture. Basically. Um, and scripture does have, you know, a lot of prominence in New South Wales schools. But does anyone read the Telegraph anymore anyway? Do you, do you think that part of it is the theatre of News Corp coming out against these things, mm. whipping things up? But actually, the audience is only the politicians. Um, I think it depends on the paper. Like the Australian, as much as it struggles for readership, is still a really powerful newspaper, especially amongst politicians. You saw that with Safe Schools, they make it front page news. I mean, we've reached a point in the conversation where you have to refer to Safe Schools as the controversial Safe Schools program. What I wanted to do was find out, you know, one, what is the program? And two, how did it become controversial? And when the Australian makes it front page news, it will be discussed in Parliament that same day. It's funny how the media does that. I, I always think of the notorious Karabakan prison in the oh, media. Yes. And when those phrases get passed around, you kind of concede the point before you even explore it. And so you went to look at what safe schools 
actually is. Yeah, and what I thought when I came into it was that this was a classroom resource where kids are taught about LGBTIQ before they even know the three R's. Aren't boys meant to dress up as women? Yeah, and they're they're taught. And and to be honest, from what I'd heard being a gay guy myself, I was just like, actually, it sounds like something I wish I heard when I was growing up. But then you actually look into it and you realise, actually, even calling it a program is a bit of a misnomer because it's not a classroom student-based resource at all. There are optional resources for schools who think that is appropriate, um, but... At a very fundamental level, it's asking principals and teachers to sign a pledge to keep kids safe. And that's it. That's it. That's what all the controversy has been about. And I know that sounds outrageous because it doesn't resemble any of the media coverage, but you actually look through the actual resource. All of it's online. If you look at the Safe Schools website, it is basically... A pledge. If you're going to go and read it, sure. <laughs> if you're actually going to do the research, if you're actually going to do a Google search. But I read lots of Australian articles telling me different things, and I was very impressed. You actually got them all printed out, yeah, professionally and bound. Went can, to Office can, Works. Can we borrow that? How heavy is it? Um, it's kind of you know ninety thousand words sounds like a lot, but I'm bad with numbers, so I was just like, what does that even look like? That's like a PhD what, what thesis. It, it looks like a PhD thesis, and it's kind of a volume where if you threw it at a young child's head, it would probably kill them. It's very, very so heavy. It's it is very unsafe. Yes, yeah. that's right. That's right. And what were the themes that you emerged? How did they conduct this exercise in moral panic? Charles, take notes. Uh, So what do you have to do? First of all, you get someone like um, a very concerned mother, like Chella White, uh, who you would have seen up prop up in the no campaign um, advertisements, basically lying. Uh, Get them to go to the Herald Sun and tell journalists like Rita Panahi that uh, your child is being taught that they can wear dresses at school and that there are like 6,700 genders or something like that and have that reported as news. That's the first step. See, this is the one of the things that came out in your essay was just how fraudulent a lot of the arguments were, how many lies there were on that side. Mm. Does that, is that in some ways heartening though that they have to go to the point where they're actually just lying about the, the program I mean, in I, order to, that they're building it on such a straw case that... I mean, on one hand, you'd think, um, you know, they've got nothing else. They have no leg to stand on and therefore have to manufacture stuff. But in this post-fact world, uh, those lies really take hold. It's so you've enough got, to repeat it. You've got gorilla photo. You've got gorilla videos on YouTube um, from anti-safe schools campaigners, basically saying my child was given safe schools packs and mm. told how to have anal with dildo, like the most outrageous kind of claims. And in all of that, that gets like thousands, tens of thousands of shares as well. And it's just like, did you know this is happening in schools? To which I'd say. What school would do <laughs> such a thing? And and if your child went to that school, wouldn't you also know about it well, pretty quickly? I, I read in the essay that, that it was suggested at one point that 13-year-old boys were being asked to build models of vaginas. Now, if I'd done that, I would have been a lot better in my first sexual encounters, I can tell you. <laughs> but that's clearly not happening, is it? No, no, no. Um, and, and if it is happening, it's definitely not a safe school-sanctioned activity. Uh, it's possibly reportable. <laughs> look, there's, in, in all of this, a lot of so-called parents who don't have children necessarily even enrolled in these schools, but a lot of concerned parents have been coming out with these claims. If those claims could be substantiated, where are the concerned teachers and principals who are also horrified and outraged having to teach it? These are 
pure fabrications that have really taken root in the national consciousness. And at some point in this process, Lyle Shelton gets involved, as he so often does. Oh, he has many fingers in many pies, Dom. Uh, and Lyle Shelton is, you know, self-appointed um, face of the anti-marriage campaign in Australia. He's the managing director of the Australian Christian Lobby as well. He's a very, very smooth media performer. Um, and in all of this, he sees um, an opportunity to conflate safe schools with same-sex marriage because their whole thing is preventing same-sex marriage from happening in this country. Safe schools was a big win. Not too many arguments hold up against same-sex marriage in 2017 anymore, so he's using safe schools as a prop against well, that's it. Well, that's the whole case now. That's yeah. basically every ad is is that. If, if you vote uh, yes, then, then the gays will come into our schools and brainwash your children. Yeah, it's a domino effect apparently. But ABC Fact Check, um, they have basically said that is baseless. Um, Professor Bill Loudon, who is one of the most senior education experts in the country, has also said that is an outright lie. He is a serial liar, essentially. And, uh, but his lies really, really do get a lot of traction. W- would you let him hate fuck you? Ah, uh, look... Uh, how many beers are on offer? Look, if it was for the national good, maybe, Charles. Yeah. I think if there was a video of that, that would pretty much end the uh, the no case. I think that point. was like a storyline in Black Mirror on Netflix. It is odd how these school things do stay with you. I mean, I remember mm. in year six having an incredibly pro-green teacher who basically made us do environmental projects for the entire year, which left me caring about about, uh, environmentalism. So it's quite, Mm. it can be quite dangerous, this stuff. Absolutely. Absolutely. Those formative years, what are they going to do to you? But, but in all of this, I mean, for everyone who's, who's, who's straight out there and has encountered gay people in their lives, gay plots on television, have those really affected your sexuality? Well, isn't this the whole risk uh, uh, of the Lyle Shelton's for them? is that um, people meet gay people, they're not a threat, and so mm. therefore, you know, things like gay marriage do actually become thing, And that's why they've had to sort of shift it to trans people. Yes. Because, because there's still a real fear um, when it comes to trans people, especially when it comes to our kids and things like that. Absolutely. So I think for a really long time now, um, you know, it's it's not the best measure of how we support gays in this country, but in terms of same-sex marriage, we haven't had... A, Australia, by, by and large, hasn't had a problem with it for a very, very long time, according to surveys. Um, majority of Australian Christians support same-sex marriage. Even with last surveys, the majority of Australian conservative voters actually support same-sex marriage. So, well, it's marriage. Exactly. You know, still exactly. Marriage. They're supporting a very beautiful conservative institution as as well. And so um, we've come to this point where most of us don't have problems with same-sex attracted people, but where we're kind of on unfamiliar ground is with gender variant, transgender, gender questioning people. And a lot of our security comes from boundaries, you know, knowing what a man is, knowing what a woman is. And intersex people or transgender people, um, that that's something that's new to a lot of us. We didn't grow up with this idea of what mm. transgender was. We didn't, um, a lot of us didn't have transgender people in our lives or at least people that we knew as transgender as well. And then the idea of kids being transgender, that's really, really confronting. And the people like Lyle Shelton out there actually know that we're really afraid of that and they're afraid of it too and they want to exploit that fear. You mentioned in the book that you really weren't sure about this either, the question of when you essentially allow a child to express 
these desires, but actually then to act on them. Mm. But you did the wrong thing. You went to see an expert. I know. Um, I, should, just I shouldn't have talked to forming people. Forming your own views just stuff. as a sensible. I didn't do what the Australian did and write 90,000 words about LGBTIQ youth without, without actually talking to LGBTIQ youth or the experts who actually deal with them. So yeah, I did talk to gender specialists and um, gender specialists will tell you about the fact that um, you know, there is something called gender dysphoria and it's a condition where kids don't feel like they belong in their bodies. Now, for some kids, that's confusion. But if you have gender dysphoria, that can be distressing if you are not supported by your family and by your school as well. If you are forced to wear clothes that, that, that make you feel physically uncomfortable, that can have really disastrous effects on a child's mental health. And that's that's actually not a new body of study. That that research has been around for a really, really long time. And what I find really surprising about a lot of people making up their minds about this stuff, they are going on emotion and instinct when we really need to look at facts and research. Yeah, and you, you found it was a very, very low percentage of, of people who went down that path that went on to regret it. Mm, yeah, and, and a lot of international studies have shown, I mean, um, that if you are someone who regrets, you know, any kind of medical intervention to affirm the gender that you feel. Um, those are often adults who aren't necessarily supported in other ways as well. But if you are a young person, I mean, just recently, the young Victorian of the year is a young girl who's transgender called Georgie Stone. She's a teenager now, actually. She's one of the most um, articulate people who can lead you through this. People speak about transgender youth as though they're some abstract thing. But if you have a school of at least 100 kids, statistically, there will be a trans kid in amongst there. And the challenge is whether schools and teaching and support staff are equipped to make that child feel comfortable in that environment. And a lot of schools are failing. So in some ways, what you're saying is the sort of deprecation of the Safe Schools campaign um, is going to have real damage to those kids. Yeah. Look, Safe Schools on a very fundamental level as I said, was principals and teachers signing a pledge. Now, the next step they can get is teacher support training because a lot of teachers and principals do want to keep uh, LGBTIQ kids safe. They do want to eradicate homophobia, but they also know it's a really sensitive issue. So they are equipped with resources, if they want, about how, as teachers and principals, they can go about doing that. They're given the 101s in terms of what transgenderism is. They're given the 101 in terms of what kids who identify as LGBTIQ need from them as well. And that's basically it. You finish the essay or near the end of the essay, you ask a very simple question. You say, we should ask kids, what do you need of us and how can we help? Now, I'm not a parent myself, but Charles is. Charles, if you start asking those questions, isn't there a danger that your kids will tell you? Oh, yeah, no, you don't want to, don't, never ask those questions. You're obviously not a parent yourself. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, and I'd, I'd make a terrible one wanting to speak to children, obviously, wanting to speak to teenagers. Isn't it just <laughs> easier to, to work out what they want from columnists and things like that? Yeah, columnists who've never met them or never spoken to experts. I think that's usually how, how things go. But you just get certainty yeah. that way. It's just yeah. easier. Certainty's comfortable, isn't it? To feel discomfort to feel ambiguity, to not have all the answers on hand immediately. I can understand why people would feel uncomfortable with that, but maybe we owe it to young kids to try harder. The other issue, of course, that, that fits in with all of this is is bullying. One of the ways that Safe Schools has been attacked, actually, is for particularly state governments in places like New South Wales to say, look, we just want to focus on bullying in mm. general and try and, and stop that. 
Now, we at Border Force <laughs> feel that we're often the victims of, of bullying in of the media course, and by elites. And so victims. isn't there a need for people like us to, to be looked after as well? Absolutely. Like people of Border Force and other minorities like redheads or anyone else should be should be protected from, from bullying, right? And I think that's something that's a, an argument that's been prosecuted when we're talking about safe schools, when a lot of federal MPs have talked about safe schools. Where are the anti-bullying programs for? You know, kids who are bigger, kids who have red hair, kids who are Indigenous, kids who might have parents who work for Border Force, for or, or, instance. Or, for instance, kids who might have been unfavourably compared with uh, with certain vegetables. I mean, Minister Dutton hmm. had a very tough upbringing. That's why he joined the police to begin with. Yes, he has been compared to what is it? Is it potatoes or yams that he's been compared to? A root Sweet vegetable. Sweet potatoes. With divots. Yeah, pumpkins at times. Those things are delicious and you should embrace those comparisons, Minister Dutton. That, that picture up on the wall, that, mm. that's actually not a potato. That is Mr. Dutton. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. I just, I just, I just yeah. thought it was a shrine to, to starch. <laughs> but with, with um, anti-bullying programs should be in place. That's incontestable. The thing about safe schools is it's not just an anti-bullying program. It's about equipping teachers and principals in charge in order to keep LGBTIQ kids safe. Part of that, you could argue, is an anti-bullying strategy as well, but it's it's a lot more. And the other thing is anti-bullying strategies, programs, initiatives, they've been in public schools and private schools for decades. We're not, you know, safe schools isn't asking for anything, um, you know, isn't trying to replace them and it isn't pretending to be an all-encompassing anti-bullying initiative. What it's saying is that we need to be there to complement anti-bullying initiatives that are already doing their work. And the second thing is what international studies have shown is that if you don't address homophobia specifically as a type of bullying, it doesn't actually get diminished at all. Homophobia doesn't recede unless you actually address it Call specifically. It mm. Well, this is the this is the thing. Kids don't actually know what bullying is until you specifically point it out. Mm. My, my, my kids are totally anti-bullying, but they'll still bully each other until you go, hey, wait a minute, that's bullying. Absolutely. Yeah. And for all the times that, you know, I was called racial epithets at school, it would, be, would have been fine for a teacher to say you can't do that. But a teacher also needs to explain why that's wrong you know, why racism is wrong. And I feel like that's the next step. A lot of people who are against safe schools don't want to even have the conversation about homophobia. Hold on, Don, can I just see you for a second? Yeah, sure, sorry. Sorry. You just said racism was wrong. Yeah, look, there are problems with this entire conversation. I think we should deport him. I think we need to deport him back to where he comes from, back to Queensland. Yeah, look, it's certainly... Pretty good option. I, I mean, just that really, I mean, Dado is not going to be pleased with, you know, if we've got on record somebody saying that racism is wrong. Yeah, all right, look, let's put it to him. Look, Ben, this is all well and good and you've got your research and your data, but what this is going to lead to, okay, fine, look, I think all Australians, we're reasonable people, we, we know that homophobia is bad, but what you're talking about is empathy. And if we start mm. teaching kids to have empathy with people who aren't like them, where does it end? Fine. Mm. Anyone with an Australian passport, we have no issues. Sexuality, race, it's all fine. But what if, Ben, they start feeling these sorts of concerns and empathy with people in mandatory detention? Look, I, I see where you're going with this. Empathy for uh, people who aren't like you sexually, empathy for refugees. Obviously, that will lead to people... It's a, people, sli- it's a slippery, slippery slope. slope. Look, yeah, and of course, like, I can see the direct line between that and wanting to marry a fire hydrant. I really, really do. Or the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Absolutely. But in all of this, 
maybe we should stop and is empathy such a bad thing? Yes. Like for instance, well, shouldn't shouldn't the people who are calling um, Minister Dutton a potato head shouldn't they empathise with him oh. about his and empathise with the potatoes? I mean, imagine being a potato and being compared right. to Peter Dutton. That's true. That's really really true. There probably needs to be an anti-bullying initiative just for potatoes. So this is very difficult because on the one hand, I know that it's not okay to call Minister Dutton a potato, but on the other hand. I know that we don't want people to start feeling soft towards asylum seekers and and have come here without permission and jumped the queue. They're queue jumpers, Ben. It's what they are. Yeah, but how do we reconcile all this? Haven't we all jumped a queue at one stage in our lives? And also, when you're talking about queue jumping, where is the queue that people are talking about? I've never seen photographic evidence of it. Shit. Dom, can I see you for a sec? Photoshop department. I'm already on it. Okay. So, look, this is all very good, but we feel threatened um, mm. by your arguments. Not in terms of safe schools, that's all fine, but of where it ends. And I think essentially our judgment is that you're going to have to go back to where you came from. To the Sunshine to Coast. To the Sunshine Coast. Mm. That's, that's, that's a cruel and unusual punishment. Are you sure that the UN even allows people being deported to the Sunshine Coast? I think we're going to find out. Ben's quarterly essay, Moral Panic 101, is available now. In fact, it's been so popular they've had to reprint it. Extreme Vetting is written, presented and edited by Charles Firth and Dom Knight. The show is produced by Alex Mitchell, audio production by Nick Slater. The executive producer is Jamie Show. And remember, no one is safe. No one. Listener.